Hello, and welcome to the Beyond Borders podcast, the podcast that explores topics related to international trade. This podcast is brought to you by Buckland. For over 70 years, Buckland has been working to help companies across the world experience global trade in a better way. As a customer-focused company, we provide you with a single source of unmatched customs brokerage, trade-managed solutions, freight forwarding, trade technologies, and warehousing and distribution services. I'm your host, Jenny Kaus, Marketing Manager at Buckland, and today I am speaking with our guest, Laura Terpsma. Laura has a law degree from Brooklyn Law School and for the past 15 years has practiced as a compliance attorney in the fields of healthcare, trade, and automotive compliance. She is a certified healthcare compliance professional and previously has worked for the U.S. Trade and Customs Office in New York City. Today we will be discussing USMCA, the new trade agreement between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So I just mentioned uh, the phrase USMCA uh, as the trade agreement by Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. And that's the name that you'll hear us kind of using today as we talk about this. Um, Just be, you know, but it actually stands for, when we kind of spell it all out, the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. As you may also know, in Canada, it is known by a slightly different acronym, which we're calling CUSMA, or C-U-S-M-A. And that stands for the Canada-United States-Mexico Agreement. And then just to further complicate things, we have yet another name in Mexico, and they are using T-MEC, so T-M-E-C. And I'm not going to say it in a Spanish accent, but I'll just tell you what it is. And it's Tratado Entre Mexico, Estados Unidos y Canada. So it's kind of saying the same things in all the language, but everybody's putting it in the order with their own country first. So we, that's a bit of a difference, but it's something that some people may have seen out there. And I'm, Laura, I'm sure, Laura, you've seen this too, with the name being used differently. And I know that it has caused a little confusion. So I just wanted to off the hop, clear that up so that with that in mind, we can kind of get down into talking about that. So Laura, I'm wondering if maybe the best place for us to start on this is kind of how we got to where we are. So, I mean, obviously before this, we had NAFTA, um, but where did we kind of get to where we're at today? Yes. So NAFTA, as you know, um, 1994 North American Free Trade Agreement um, set out really to um, alleviate and sort of eliminate um, duties and barriers and some of the tariffs between Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. Um, And then in 2017, um, President Trump and the leaders of Mexico and Canada started to um, discuss, as NAFTA was sunsetting, um, the renegotiation of of NAFTA. And President Trump set out um, specifically uh, with the goal of reducing the U.S. trade deficit. Um, And then also um, updating outdated aspects of NAFTA, specifically around um, intellectual property, so IP concerns, country of origin. Um, And if you think about it, 1994, um, well, at least for me, doesn't seem so long ago. um, And though the technology has significantly been updated, um, not only the technology 
really like what we're using today to talk, but um, the technology that's going into the products that are going back and forth across the border. Um, and I know today we'll talk um, specifically about automotive. Um, we'll touch on some of the other aspects, but some of the um, technology that we're using now in cars um, just wasn't available. And so a lot of um, NAFTA just never addressed some of that. Um, the administration here in the U.S. also um, wanted to rebalance really what they saw as um, an unfair trade um, in the manufacturing sector um, and bring some of that manufacturing work back um, to the U.S. And so you'll see that when we talk about the regional value content rule and um, even more specifically in the labor value content um, that goes sort of hand in hand with that um, country of origin issues. Thank you for that. Um, and I know a lot of the kind of questions around NAFTA to USMCA when it comes down to it, you know, we've we've gone through all these talks and this has all happened, but a lot of those questions now are kind of, okay, really what's the difference? This is what people, you know, really want to know at this point is what does this mean for them? What's going to be different? Yeah, sure. So like I mentioned, one of the big um, impacts of this, and particularly I would think for some of your Buckland clients, um, is going to be the automotive rules of origin mm -hmm. um, and how the regional value content is determined from a, um, unfortunately for some of us, from a math perspective. Um, mm -hmm. So there are calculations that were utilized in the NAFTA um, GN11, uh, General Note 11 uh, mentioned a lot of the um, prior calculations and that regional value content calculation has changed. Um, first and foremost, that has changed that the North American content must be 75%. Um, so that's a pretty significant jump up from what it was under NAFTA, which was 62.5%. Um, yeah, and the calculation methods um, also now can be utilized in two separate formats. So um, we'll get into that, but um, there's two different value propositions of how you get to that 75%. Uh, the other thing that's pretty significant, um, and this was part of um, Trump's election campaign really, was that um, steel and aluminum has to come back to the U.S. Um, a lot of that work was sent out. Um, and so they're requiring that 70% of all steel and aluminum in the production of a car must originate in North America. There are also some chemical and fiber optic requirements that were upped um, in the new uh, USMC. Oh, so, um, and that will impact vehicles. Um, and then, like I said, chemicals, glass, fiber optics. And then um, only producers really using significant and sufficient North American parts um, are going to get the preferential um, either free trade or lowered preferential tariff treatment. Um, and then the last part of this is that um, the required labor content, uh, this is a huge change. I, I almost think this might be bigger um, impact to some of your clients than the 75% um, content is the wage requirement. So in the U.S., um, the wage requirement is going to be $16 an hour for 40% of the car. And um, that goes back to that labor content that I was discussing a few moments mm -hmm. ago. In Canada, that equates to about $21 an hour, a little less. And in Mexico, it's about 305. 
Um, and so that's going to be a significant shift, I think, for some of um, the manufacturers and suppliers as they start to make their goods and bring them back and forth across the border. Yeah. Um, and then uh, like 40% of the car and 45 for the light truck. Um, and, and there is a phase-in requirement. Um, they have the 2020 and the 2021 set. Oh, okay. Um, and so we'll discuss um, that a little more in depth. But, and I thought um, that that was interesting that it was different for cars and light trucks. Yeah, and I think part of that is because um, the vehicles like um, for a car, you're going to have different components than a light truck. And for some of the light truck components, um, and obviously for the heavier trucks, you're going to have more manufacturing being done. And so that 45%, I think, is, um, is equivalent to that that was done in the negotiation section. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, and I know one of the other big changes was around dairy market access as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, I, I think this is somewhat interesting. Um, dairy market and agriculture really isn't um, my purview. And sure. though, um, I think it was kind of put in on the back end in the negotiation phase of this. But um, simply put, the U.S. was able to gain more access um, to Canada's dairy markets, which mm -hmm. could be good for both. Um, the U.S., I know dairy industry heavily lobbied against this. Um, to keep some of that yeah. here. And the Canadian, obviously, dairy market was very interested in us being able to buy goods across the border. Um, and then because of that, Canada was able to increase exports of um, dairy, peanuts, and sugar to the U.S. That will be significant, um, I think, in the U.S. from an economic perspective, primarily because of how much the U.S. uses um, corn in creating um, high fructose corn sh sugar for a lot of products. So if we can obtain sugar cheaper in Canada, um, then we might not be buying as much corn here, which then obviously has its own economic impact. Absolutely. Um, and you did mention earlier um, some other things that I'm wondering if we could kind of talk as well about intellectual property, because I know that that was a big one as well. Yeah, so probably two of the biggest aspects of IP uh, intellectual property is um, the increase from eight years uh, to 10 years for the time that a pharmaceutical company can maintain a patent. So why this is so important is um, pharmaceutical companies spend um, the majority of their R&D, their research and development on obtaining patents. And so then once you obtain a patent, you then can um, be the sole seller of that product for however long you have the patent. Once the patent expires, then you can get generics created and it um, basically bottoms out um, a lot of your ability to make any money off the goods. So that increase of two years could be substantial for yeah. pharmaceutical. Um, two years of you know being the sole provider of a drug, particularly if it's a novel drug and then I mean, in the in the world we're operating in now with relationship to COVID-19 and this, if you're the first to the market with a drug that works, um, that could yeah. be substantial. Absolutely. Um, the second piece of that is um, copyright terms uh, were extended from 50 years um, to 70. Um, this makes me laugh because actually in law school, 
um, I did quite a bit of intellectual property work and um, after school for customs. And then I worked for Chanel in New York okay. City on their IP team. But um, this is funny because this is always a thing. It's life plus 70, life plus 70 in New York. And, and what did that mean? Um, so really what it means is if you're the author or someone who creates the work, um, the copyright that you have that someone can't utilize your work without paying is, is your life, however long that is. Um, and then once you pass, plus, well, now 70. Um, and so whoever was um, to inherit that copyright would then have um, the sole 70 years of um, payment for use right. of that in, um, information. Um, and so this is more in line with uh, U.S. law regarding copyright, uh, this extension to 70 years. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, it'll be, a lot of these, it'll be fascinating to kind of see, you know, in another five years, even kind of what are some of the downstream effects and, and even longer for something like that. Very cool. um, and then the other thing was sunset clause. I thought that this was an interesting inclusion. And yeah, so there's a renewable... 16 year term for the deal. Um, and this is an improvement over um, the five year, but essentially um, this can be renewed for up to 16 years. This seems, I think this is interesting too, how this plays out, um, particularly because NAFTA was in place for as long as it was mm-hmm. with five year sunset clauses. And now you up this to 16 year term. Um, a lot can happen in 16 years, particularly yeah. with, um, you know, we're talking about uh, intellectual property. We're talking about access to farming markets with, um, you know, differing changes in climate. So what's that going to look like? Um, so, yeah, it goes from five to 16 years. So we could be with um, this version of this trade agreement for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, and that, it, yeah, that it does strike me as a, pretty big jump. Yeah, correct. Yeah. That's going to be interesting to see that as well. Um, And what about dispute resolution? Yeah, so dispute resolution, um, this is not a huge, not huge change, but a big enough change. And and it will be interesting, again, how this plays out um, if and when there are disputes across the border. So it restricts Chapter 11 between um, the U.S. and Mexico. And, um, and then it eliminates between the U.S. and Canada. Um, so Chapter 11 is then obviously the investor-to-state dispute uh, resolution mechanism, so ISTIS. And um, so you're going to see a lot less of what they can do um, between each other in terms of actually um, filing a lawsuit. So in the U.S., this is pretty common for us. Um, I'm not so familiar with Canadian law specifically, but I think it's very similar there. Um, oftentimes, let's say you buy a good at the store and you buy something. Um, let's say you go to Lowe's or Home Depot and you buy a good and it says any dispute's going to be resolved by um, arbitration or mediation. So um, you're almost forced into this sort of alternative dispute um, avenue. You can't really take this to court. And this is really what um, this is doing here for um, companies now under the trade agreement, which could be interesting. Uh, 19 and 20 were left untouched. And um, 20 is the country to country dispute. So that makes sense that that was left untouched. I can't imagine that that would have changed much. 
um, and 19 is the anti-dumping um, and the countervailing duty dispute resolution mechanism. So um, again, not shocked that those didn't um, yeah. get played with very much. That, that makes very much sense to me. Um, I am interested to see chapter 11 um, restriction and then the complete elimination between US and Canada. Um, yeah. And then what, what will be also interesting about that um, more from maybe just, um, I don't know, want to say academic standpoint is that what does that look like if um, a business has uh, Mexico ties and Canadian ties, but the U.S. then has a dispute with both entities on both ends? What does that look like and how does that play out? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we mentioned there anti-dumping and countervailing duties. And if if you're listening to this and this is something that you want to learn more about, we do have a podcast and a webinar, uh, on-demand webinar on that topic. So do check that out if you'd like to learn more about that. Um, and then the, the one other thing I wanted to mention here was the certificate of origin. We are seeing this on our end right now as people are preparing for the, you know, July 1st changeover um, as people get used to the new way of doing things. They're very used to with NAFTA. We had NAFTA certificate of origin. You would complete that to be able to show um, that your goods qualified. Uh, but there is a change to this that is, I think, throwing people off. Yeah, so I think this is probably where we'll spend uh, the majority of our time today and sort of talk about what this looks like. So I'm going to mm -hmm. go back just a little bit to the regional value um, content and the calculation of that. So in order for goods to qualify under um, the new, I almost said NAFTA. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just like so comfortable saying. Um, yeah. In order for goods to qualify under the new trade agreement, um, they have to, like I mentioned before, qualify both under value content and then also the labor content. And so how the regional value content calculation will work. And I promise I won't do math <laughs> on a <laughs> podcast, um, but just high level. And then we'll dive in a little is that you have two options. So your first option is the transactional value method. So essentially what you're going to do is you're going to take the regional value content and that's going to equal basically the transactional value of the good minus any value of the non-originating materials. And that also includes materials of undetermined origin. So you're going to take, again, the transaction value of the good minus any good that you can't figure out maybe where it came from or the value of it, divided by, again, the transactional value of the good times 100. If that percentage is 75% or higher, great, you're good. The net cost method might work better for some folks, depending on the kind of product you're dealing with. So each industry is going to have to determine what um, calculation works best for them. Mm -hmm. They're going to take your, um, essentially the regional value under the net cost method will equal the net cost of the good. So what's the good cost? Um, minus what's the value of the non-originating materials, again, uh, including materials of undetermined origin all divided by, again, the net cost of the good, and then multiply by 100 to get your percentage. If this is then 75%, essentially you're in the clear. So long as you are, and like I said, this is where I think 
uh, it really gets a little flipped on its head is this labor value content calculation. Mm -hmm. So yes, you have to have this regional value content calculation, but you also have to have the labor value piece or the component or it does not qualify. So for 2020, 30%, um, so and consisting at least 30% of the good has to fit into these new calculations, $16, Um, consisting of at least 15 percentage points of high wage material and manufacturing expenditures, no more than 10 percentage points of high wage technology expenditures and five percentage points of high wage assembly expenditures. For purposes of the podcast, I'm not going to go into all of what those are because I think we probably could be here for a while. But like (laughs) you had said, if if people need more information about that, we can go into more depth with them. Um, But essentially, you want to think of your high-wage assembly plants as places that – and they have this listed out, but you're making – you know, a hundred thousand more engines, a hundred thousand more, um, or a hundred thousand more transmissions, um, 25,000 advanced battery packs, things like that are doing, um, an enormous amount of this development on high wage goods. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the most important things to consider in this is that, um, when you're doing the calculation for, um, your labor value content, uh, your part-time and your seasonal workers are included in that calculation. Okay. I think, I think that's an important distinction and or piece of information that people should should know about um, when they're doing that calculation. So in terms of your um, certificate of origin, kind of back to that. So let's say now you've hit your regional value calculation and your labor, you're good in those calculations. Um, now USMCA is saying July 1st, 2020, we supersede NAFTA and anything imported as of midnight on July 1st, 2020 or exported has to fit USMCA standards. There's no sort of like sun setting out or anything. It is like hard and fast July 1st. Um, So NAFTA forms cannot be used. Um, However, let's say you ship something June 25th, 2020. NAFTA forms can be used um, and your compliance, um, let's say you get audited six months, a year, two years later, your compliance standard will be done based on NAFTA rules. Okay. So, so for the next few years, um, business is going to have to be able to both withstand an audit, arguably, um, under NAFTA, as well as under the new regulations. Oh, so okay. So it's not like July 1st, you just pitch your compliance manual on NAFTA. Um, you need to keep those documents um, per regulation and just for good practice, I would say five. I advise people seven years. Yeah. Um, just for audit purposes. Absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, it just makes sense. The only, not problem, but what it will create for folks, though, is you're going to want to keep anything you ship July 1st, you've got to keep in your NAFTA bucket, and then anything after July 1st has got to be in the USMCA bucket. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah. And in terms of refunds, um, if anything was imported or exported and you think you should have been classified at a different rate or you think it should have been duty free or whatever your concern is, you need to be able to have or show those NAFTA certificates um, prior July 1st so that you can claim um, they were imported prior to mm-hmm. and that um, you should still be qualifying for that duty free. And that will matter, obviously, um, with the jump from 62.5 to 75 percent. Yeah. So you want to make sure you keep that. Yeah, and I just I think it's so interesting that, you know, before there was a very kind of prescribed format for completing this. And now it's kind of been opened up in a couple different ways. You know, there's there's not that specific format. Um, you know, it, it can be completed by different parties, whereas before it was more restricted. So now it could be exporter, producer, importer. And then as well, there's some changes to signatures, I understand. Yeah. So what you're mentioning is there is no longer a form, although plenty of places have forms that you can utilize. And yes. as long as they hit the um, data elements as follows, you know, great. Yeah. Um, and like you said, this can be this can be done by the exporter, the producer, the importer. Um, and prior, you used to have to have your like physical, you know, certificate of origin. And now um, these can be done electronically, um, signed electronically. So I think that's part of the, you know, what you're talking about. The, the big change um, from NAFTA to now is that. Um, we're moving towards a paperless society. We're moving more into tech. Um, there could be obviously issues with this, with concern about um, being able to go in and change. Um, it's pretty clear on a piece of paper when you go in and change a signature or a date. Yeah. Uh, not so clear. Um, I mean, there is data, you know, obviously stamping done on the back end yeah. of things. So, um, but yeah, electronic signatures will be um, accepted, which is great. Well, and it's, I do find the timing interesting. I mean, you know, we couldn't have predicted the times that we're in right now, but, you know, with everything happening with COVID, we have been forced in so many ways across society to really embrace uh, digital electronic methods. Um, So it, it is kind of interesting timing as I see it with this even to be happening. I feel like people will be all that much more prepared for this in terms of the, that new method. Absolutely. And it makes sense. I mean, when you look at 1994 versus now, if there's, there's going to be some big changes there. So, you know, when you think about that 16 year sunset clause, I can only imagine by that point, what things will look like. Yeah. The change from now to then. Mm -hmm. And I should mention as well, at the time of recording this, uh, It is May 27th that Laura and I are speaking. So, you know, we are still several weeks out from the implementation of the new USMCA. So as we're talking about this, this is why we're kind of talking about it in the future sense. So depending on when you're listening to this, that's why, um, you know, as we're kind of anticipating this happening on July 1st and And that's the interesting thing, too, is I think it's important that you said is, you know, it really is that hard line, you know, on the last day in June and then the beginning of July where that's just going to switch right over. Well, and I I was going to say that's a great mention, though. There is a really hard line and there are a few um, 
baked into the new regulation, some timeframes that give the importer and exporter some, some leeway. So for instance, if, you know, the importer is required to have valid um, certification of origin in its possession. Um, but if it is defective or incomplete, uh, the importer has a grace period of five days um, hmm. to correct that. Um, so Great. that's baked in. Um, and the importer, it, it specifically says, won't be subject to penalties here in the U.S. under um, 19 U.S.C. 1592. Um so long as it um, corrects its declaration within 30 days of discovery. So oh, okay. that isn't even 30 days of importation. That's 30 days of discovery of a wrong classification. So um, okay. it could be uh, longer than that 30 day period. Great. Um, yeah. And then finally, um, you know, always something to note, um, there is no certification required for anything valued under $2,500. Oh, Okay. Provided, though, um, that it's not part of what will be considered a series or a grouping of import to then create something that's valued more than the 2500 Oh, okay. So you couldn't, you know, say I'm going to import a microscope or something, I don't know, and then you're going to say, well, the lens is 1800 and the base is 500 and, you know, but then when I put the microscope together, it's worth 8000 mm. Um you know, you have to just be careful of that, that you're not importing pieces and then assembling to forego any sort of certificate and or tariffs. Uh, right. Not a, not a great way to go around that. <laughs> no. No. Not at all. And um, then was there anything else that comes to mind when we're thinking about this? No, I just really think, um, I know, you know, in the news, and I think it's easy for the news to pick up on uh, pieces of this, uh, when, particularly when it was being negotiated, that are sound bitey. So I know a lot of um, <laughs> focus was done on the 62% to 75%. But really, I think as um, we move into the future, I think business is going to see that that labor content valuation is really where um, they have to do a lot of the work of making sure that they hit that uh, the, or those benchmarks, I should say, in order mm -hmm. to qualify as a good with um, and then get these certificates of origin. Um, that was one of the original goals with NAFTA, right, was to kind of have kind of an equal playing field for the parties and have kind of the wages reflected evenly, right? And it wasn't quite achieved. Right. And you know what I find, I mean, this, you know, is interesting is that a lot of that push for this wage labor content valuation was done um, from south of the border in Mexico, which I think is great. Um, because again, sound buddy in the news, you could make the wrong assumption that just they were fine with whatever they were getting paid. It was a lot of manufacturing was just coming down there and it was more about the job creation rather right. than the pay. And um, I think that was a great move to what you said, like level the playing field. It will just be a harder um, piece of the pie to fit in, I think, for some of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great. Thank you very much for that, Laura. Yeah, you're welcome. This is some great information, and I, I certainly learned a lot, so I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care.
And if anybody has any questions that have come up uh, during Laura and I's conversation, I certainly welcome you to reach out to us. Uh, a great way to get a hold of us is at csagroup at buckland.com. And that stands for Customer Service Administration Group, in case you're wondering why, why that acronym is. So csagroup at buckland.com. If you have any questions or if we can be of assistance, um, we of course have a full service compliance department. If you have any questions about this material, we are certainly happy to help you out. Uh, thank you again, Laura, for joining me today to talk about the latest uh, as we get closer and closer to the implementation of USMCA on July 1st. It's uh, very exciting. And I'm sure I'm hoping that you and I will get to talk again about this. Absolutely. Thank you. And that's the Beyond Borders podcast for today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our very special guest, Laura Terpsma, for joining us and for sharing her expertise. If you're looking for more resources related to international trade, check out buckland.com slash learning, or you can click on the learning button at the top of our website. Here you will find a range of resources, including downloadable learning guides, on-demand webinars, and of course, this podcast. You want to check out our learning guides for the new IncoTerms 2020 reference chart, as well as many other great resources. On this site, you can also check out any of our webinars that we've done. They are available and on demand and watch for any new ones there as well. The best way to keep up to date on all of the resources that I've just mentioned is through our weekly newsletter. So we send out a newsletter every single Wednesday and it contains our latest resources as well as a roundup of the latest trade news delivered right to your inbox. So do sign up for that. And if you want to sign up for the newsletter, the best way to do that is go to buckland.com newsletter, or if you just go to our website, the bottom of any page on our website has a spot for you to sign up. So make sure that you get on that list today. And if you have any questions, again, please feel free to reach out to us at csagroup at buckland.com or through our social channels, which are linked in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Borders podcast and be sure to tune in again and subscribe for more great conversations about importing, exporting, and everything else in the world of logistics and international trade.